welcome back to Burgers, Burgers and More Burgers, except we don't have burgers. My name is Ben Hobson and I interview your favourite authors about their favourite books. And I'm here with the delightful, the wonderful, the very handsome Jeremy Lachlan. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? That's such a lovely introduction, Ben. Thank you. That's wonderful. I can can see you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I had a big day at work and then made dinner and then we're here finally talking about about one of your favorite books. I'm excited. Um, you sort of pigged me on this one about what, oh, three or four months ago, I think you really had this one locked in. Um, so I've been looking forward to this chat, yeah. but we're going to be talking about The Lost World by Michael Crichton. I'm a, it's Michael Crichton, right? Oh, I'm seeing your copy there. Oh, you've got the hardcover. Very nice. And I'll go into that in a bit, but this is one of my most prized possessions. Wow. It's the first edition and I love it. I was going to mention, I feel like, I don't know, I think this is first edition and you can correct me because my memory was that, and I I I want to talk to you about how you came to these books, but I was a massive fan of Jurassic Park, the film. In 1993, it was sort of geared exactly for me. I was super into dinosaurs. I don't know whether you remember Dino Riders. Were you, I mean, I don't know your age. Were you, do you remember Dino Riders? I don't remember Dino Riders, but I grew up in a country town. So we didn't have, we only had like one channel growing up and everything. So maybe that, yeah. Um, Um, But but I'm 41. So I was born in 81 and Jurassic Park came out when I was in year six, instantly obsessed. Yeah. Jurassic Park came out when I was in grade three. So I'm similar age to you. Dino Riders, if you don't remember, it was this great pitch. It was pretty much just to sell toys, but it was humans from the future and aliens go back in time to dinosaur times, and then they rig up dinosaurs with lasers and rockets, and then they fight each other. with. It was amazing. But that geared me up for this. And then I loved the film so much, I bought the Jurassic Park book. And then a few years later in the local news agents, I saw this. Um and so you can see, I want to show you because this is one of the only books I still have from that time. You can see my mum's handwriting up the top. That's my mum to yeah, show that it's yeah. mine. Yep. So how do I know if you can see the pages falling out? How do I know if this is yeah. first edition? Well, it, it will say on there. See, this the beautiful thing about having this hardback. Yeah. Look at, look at this. The yours. Oh, you got, there's a, there's a that's beautiful. The island with the dinosaurs. That's really side. cool. Oh well, look, I've so, got a map. Oh no, you've got it as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's it. And it says here published published by Arrow Books in 1996. So I feel uh, so. It came, it came out in '95. Right. So um, I've got the paperback so version of the hardcover, probably. Yeah. Yeah, so the first Jurassic Park book Michael Crichton released in 1990. Jurassic Park, the movie, came out in 93. Yeah. Uh, and the, the kind of general uh, thing is that uh, Spielberg then said to Michael Crichton, what do you got next? And so he wrote <laughs> it's actually Michael Crichton's only, first and only sequel he ever did, which is really interesting. Oh, I didn't realise uh, Which that. came out in uh, And they were clearly working on the, the movie while... Uh, it was being written because the the Lost World adaptation came out in '97, and that would have had a big kind of lead time building up to that. Yeah, um, and I wanted to talk to you about that too because I read this book. Yeah, it must have been '96 when when it came out. When it came out in the paperback that I have, and I loved this book. I loved it. I thought it did 
everything that Jurassic Park did, but it sort of extended the story in this really interesting way. And I just, I found it absolutely amazing. And then the film came out and I went to the movies thinking I'm going to see The Lost World, the book up on the screen. But man, I mean, if you're talking about they were writing them concurrently, there's, I mean, there's, there's almost nothing. There's characters really that have sort of gone from the book to the film. And there's a couple of little things here and there, but you know, in the film, I feel like Spielberg just wanted to have a T-Rex run through a city. And so they had the whole thing sort of geared up for that. I don't know. How was, how did you find going to reading this book first and then going to the film? Yeah, well, I mean, just quickly on the film stuff, and then I guess we'll look back to the book. But it was my first experience of really having read a book that, and then seeing an adaptation. And I thought I would be seeing what I'd read on the screen. And yeah. I, I'll kind of never forget the experience because I sat there and started thinking, oh, no, no, this isn't right. <laughs> and, I, and I was kind of just in dis- shock and disbelief for the for the movie because there there are characters, there are elements of it, mm. uh, and you can. I've, I've actually just finished rereading the book for the first time in in a couple of decades, and and it was a really interesting experience. And again, we we, we can come to that later. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, I just sat there thinking that I'd, I'd watched the completely. I felt betrayed. Yeah. In a little way, I don't I don't hate the movie, but it, it's it's definitely got its faults, and it's not it's not my it's very far from my favorite Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very. It's strange too because the book is so good and you wonder why there were so many changes made to this story. This is what we'll get into because, look, I love this book. It is one of my favourite books of all time. But reading it now as an adult, I can understand why they made some of the changes that they did, particularly (laughs) regarding motivation and character because Michael Crichton, he does, I love the man, but he does he makes some odd choices for this one. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, I, don't, I don't know. If, it's one of those things when you reread a book that you you loved so much as a kid, you pick up on different things. And now that I've I've published a few books myself, I I do I do kind of question some of his uh, choices. Oh, that's but, so um, interesting. So you, you read it one way as a younger man and loved it, and it spoke to you clearly. And it's one of your favorites of all time. One of your favorite reading experiences. But now mm-hmm. having a bit of craft under your belt, you go back and you're like, oh, there's some. There's some flaws there. Do you want to unpack that? Like, what what did you notice in the book that you were like, ah? Uh, I mean, it's, a lot of it comes down to, and let, let me be clear, I still absolutely love it. It is an hmm. absolute blast, particularly the, the, the last quarter, the, the action kicks in and it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, mostly uh, the, the thing I struggle with is ultimately Ian Malcolm, who... Hmm. I don't know if fans will know. This is this is going to be the interesting thing because some people listening to this would have, I'm, I'm guessing most people have seen the movies. A few people won't have read the books. Yeah. Uh, but there's a bit of retconning that happens in The Lost World, the book, because at the end of The Lost World book, sorry, at the end of Jurassic Park, the book, Ian Malcolm is reported as as having died. Yeah. Uh, and it, then it would be like the film out. equivalent of actually looking at the body. Like it's that, it's almost that definitive, hey, like he's dead. He, he, he's almost, a, but it's kind of reported at the end. I like, say, oh, and Malcolm is like, oh, he didn't make it, kind of thing. He's yeah. been shipped off to hospital, and they're, and they're told that and they say, oh, you know, he didn't make it. Um, then the movie comes out. Jeff Goldblum plays Ian Malcolm and becomes one of the the most beloved characters of of the movie. Jeff Goldblum then goes in to star in um, Independence Day and all all, the, all these these big things. Uh, but the reason Michael Crichton brought him back is that um, Ian Malcolm 
serves kind of a, a narrative device in Jurassic Park and the Lost World, all yeah. about chaos theory, and mm-hmm. the novel is split into these different sections about approaching the edge of chaos and complex systems breaking down and all of that. And he's also a magnificent vehicle for Michael Crichton to just go bananas with all of his scientific theories. I had a few uh, things about this later just, on. Yeah, he just sort of, he does, he's sort yeah. of like, Malcolm's like a mouthpiece for Michael Crichton and he just goes on and on. And some of the things he says are really interesting, but they yeah. are kind of removed from the actual point of the book a little bit. Yeah, it's... Can, can we maybe go back to? I feel yeah. like I don't. I feel like I don't want to start unloading on it first. I want to tell you about my first. <laughs> yes, let's go. I, 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 I do want to hear start this. Pulling it, pulling it apart. So yeah, let's go. It, I want to set the scene. So I, I, I read a lot during primary school, like R.L. Stein thrillers and all that kind of stuff. But in year Love seven and eight, oh, it's so great! Mm-hmm. In year seven and eight, I really dropped out of reading a lot. I wasn't. I wasn't going to the library. I just. I just wasn't really consuming any books. Yeah, right. Um, and I, my mum was really trying to get me into reading, as as a lot of parents do. So she's a teacher, so she could see that I was drifting away from it. Then at the end of year eight, so Christmas 1995, my brother gave me a Christmas present and I unwrapped it and it was this book, the hardcover of Jurassic Park. That's and I still awesome. remember, it says at the bottom, the successor to Jurassic Park. And I wasn't sure what that meant. I said, what, what does the successor mean? And he said, it's the second one. And immediately, I just remember staring at this tome. It, it was my first big, like, hardcover, you know, quote-unquote adult book that I'd ever been given, the first one that I knew I was going to read. And I, I was just kind of entranced by this thing. The cover is black with white writing, and it's got this misty mountain with the Jurassic Park symbol in front of it. Yeah, uh, awesome. And I, I, I wanted to get to it as soon as possible. So we, were, we went down to my grandparents' place in Dalmeny, which is on the south coast of New South Wales, and they have this tiny. They had this tiny little uh, kind of study with mm. one wall completely filled with a shelf of really old books. So it had that old secondhand bookshop smell. And my bunk bed was this old sunken bunk bed. So you'd, you'd lie on it and you basically sink down into a different world of comfort. It, yeah. it was amazing. And for four days, I lay there just completely consumed by this book. I loved every second of it. I remember coming out uh, for lunch and, and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> in kind of days, and mum could see finally her boy was. <laughs> shh, don't disturb him. He's doing his thing. Just shh. <laughs> That's the thing because my grandparents used to give me grief. Uh, I'd be watching cartoons and I think, oh, you shouldn't be watching cartoons. You should be reading books. And now that I was reading a book, they were saying, oh, you shouldn't be what, uh, reading books. You should be talking to us. And my, I remember the look my mum gave him at one point. It was basically like death stare. Do not tell my son to not read a book. Like we're on. And she'd be asking for updates. You know who's died today and and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's cool. Honestly, just the best reading experience of my life. If I could go back and relive one reading experience, this would be it. That's so cool, man. That's so magic too that you remember that so vividly. Like I. I don't know whether I have a similar memory. Like I loved reading as a kid, but I don't remember, you know. And there's certain books that stand out, but that that just seems like it seems like this was your gateway to the world of books. It, it well, and really to to being an author as well. Because I mean, I didn't realize for another few more years that I wanted to be an author. But reading this book opened me up to all of Michael Crichton's books, which also led me to Stephen King and a bit later on Matthew Riley. All these action adventure sci fi mm. books that really shaped me as a storyteller and even rereading it now, as I said, it's the, the action sequences there, they are really thrilling. And yeah. I, you know, 
as authors, we constantly want to learn and 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 grow and and everything. And I feel like I, I love my action sequences that I've created. I and but there are even things that Michael Crichton does in this from rereading it just just today. Some of the action action sequences I read, I was like, wow, he he really does strip it back. He's not, yes. not really focused on pretty language or anything like that. It's the bare bones. This happens. This happens. This and it, or the, like the last quarter of this book, as I said, is just an absolute roller coaster. It's so it's pacey, yeah. And he's so good too. It like he does he does these massive set pieces where there's all these things happening all the time, and there's so many different little things that are happening. You sort of have to be aware of, and yet he manages to focus us on what's important to take note of. And we we never it's never confusing. We're always exactly yeah. where he needs us to be. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And the way he weaves in the scientific theories, as we said, he's got he's got Malcolm, who again, but just getting back to some of the odd choices, uh, Ian Malcolm uh, receives the exact same injury in this one that he did in the previous book and movie. So he gets uh, his legs gouged out again. He gets high on morphine again and just starts drifting in and out of one of these scientific monologues while the action's going on. So while the kids are being attacked in the high hive, we immediately go to Ian Malcolm high as a kite in the trailer going, oh, the thing about the extinction KT boundary is mm. this. And it's it's kind of amazing that he he, he he just did the same thing all over again. And, and there are other things I said, there are two kids again uh, as as well who are who kind of along for the ride. But I love those. They're the kind of iconic Jurassic Park or have now become the iconic Jurassic Park beats that each of the movie has. That's true. That's true. That's true. And then the film changed that. The film just had the one, the one kid. Yeah. And look, it's, it's. And she was the daughter of Malcolm, but that's different from the book as well. Yeah. And look, and this is where we, I guess we can get into, into that now because the, the big changes they made, some of them I do, uh, I do respect. I mean, they, they cut a lot of the characters. One of the major characters in the book who doesn't appear in the movie is Dr. Levine or Levine. Uh, I would say is, he's almost one, he's almost the main lead, almost. He's you know, kind of, th- I'd say like third or, or fourth, but he's he's the main instigator. Like in, in yeah. the book, uh, people remember from the movie, it's it's Ian Malcolm's girlfriend, Sarah Harding, played by Julianne Moore, who goes to the island ahead of time and it becomes a rescue for him to go and rescue her from from the island. And then they, they get there and they realise the other people are trying to take the dinosaurs off and it all snow, snowballs from there. Uh, in the book, uh, it's this Dr. Levine who is uh, who has uh, been tracking all of these dinosaur carcasses that have been washing up along the main coast of uh, Costa Rica and things like that. Yeah, uh, and he's convinced that there is a lost world out there, like a genuine lost world, uh, which is the scientific theory that there has been this little pocket of, of on the Earth that has where time has stood still, basically where dinosaurs still roam free. Uh, and he's convinced that that's there. He goes to see Ian Malcolm, who's doing a talk. The survivors from the first Jurassic Park incident have all been uh, like told you cannot. They sign a non-disclosure agreement, so they can't say anything about what happened. So Ian Malcolm hears his theory about a lost world. Ian Malcolm kind of knows that, okay, this, there could be something shady going on. Maybe some of the dinosaurs survived from Jurassic Park but can't tell anyone. Um, Levine goes off and uh, goes to the island, uh, and it turns into kind of a rescue mission to get him. Yeah, and that's where I think they made a better decision in the movie to make that personal connection that Sarah Harding went, and yes. there's an emotional connection because Ian Malcolm in the book. One of my biggest problems going through reading it again was his motivation, and Crichton does a really odd thing. We don't actually hear that much about Jurassic Park in the book. Yeah, um, that's we, true. 
anything about the previous adventure. Malcolm barely talks about it for the entirety of the book. Uh, he doesn't really fill in the other characters on the, the Lost World Island. Yeah, that's uh, true. What too, happened. Yeah. It's, there's some really interesting kind of choices. Uh, mm. uh, and I, I'm sure it was a deliberate thing on his part, obviously. Uh, he wrote the book, but uh, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have done the same thing. Do you think, so do you think, do you think Ian Malcolm is only in the book because the, he was in discussions with Steven Spielberg and Steven was saying, oh, well, we really want Jeff Goldblum to come back. What can you do? Or do you, do you think he put him in there as, a, again, that sort of mouthpiece that sort of wraps up a lot of the thematic things that um, Malcolm was responsible for in Jurassic Park? Or both, I, I think. I think, it's, I, think it, I think it's the latter. I remember reading a quote from Michael Crichton saying he had to have Ian Malcolm there uh, to to be able to have the, to provide the structure of the story uh, mm. and to be that kind of uh, yeah the, the mouthpiece for his for his mouthpiece for his ideas, uh, scientific theories throughout. But I guess it was just it's also convenient that he was kind of the biggest shining star out of Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, and it's really interesting you say like it's different because Malcolm has that personal connection to Sarah Harding. It's this rescue mission. And then, you know, the, the girl on the island is his daughter. So when she's in peril, there's again that personal connection. But here, the kids are research assistants of Levine, right? And then they stow away and get to the island. And then you have um, Malcolm really doesn't have that personal connection. That's actually interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, as as the main character, he actually fades into the background a bit. And Sarah Harding is a fantastic character. She really becomes the main the main character. Her and yeah. her and Doc Thorne become the main heroes. Doc Thorne is another character who uh, he and Eddie Carr were merged into one character in the movie yeah. Um, yeah. and named Eddie Carr. Uh, but Doc Thorne becomes a, and he's a great character. He and Sarah really step up as the heroes. Uh, Levine uh, kind of turns into a bit of an anti-hero, just the the guy who starts losing his mind a little bit out there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. But yeah, Sarah Harding is a fantastic character, and she is such a hero, particularly for the last quarter of the book. She kind of is taking yeah. a lead on, on everything. I, um, I still remember. I still remember a scene, and I remembered this, and I remember this from when I first read it. I remember the scene where she came into the trailer. And she's talking to the young um, research assistant and she's she hasn't had a bath or a shower in a while and she takes some dish soap and she washes it through her hair. And the research assistant is like, well, what are you doing? You know, you need shampoo. Oh, it's all the same stuff anyway. That's yeah, so yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, that was such, a, such a badass thing. Like, I, I, I think that's stuck into a lot of people's minds. Because I, I just picture her like with a handful like green palm olive mm. kind of dish dishwashing liquid and just saying it's it's all the same stuff. Say, wow, what a badass. Yeah, kind of, I know. Kind of Isn't that funny? And it's a bit of shampoo. <laughs> And like, like another choice, Michael Crichton. Yeah, so there's Kelly is the is the girl, and Arby is the boy. Uh, mm. So in the book, there's two of them, and again, one of them is a computer expert. The girl is a computer expert, which is the exact same thing that it was in the in the in the movie. And well, Arby yeah, in the little... movie, but in the book, Jurassic Park, the boy was a computer expert, right? If I'm remembering, and Lex, that, was, right? the, Lex swap, was the younger the one. Yeah. I think the reason why they swapped them is because Ariana Richards came in to read for it and she had the best scream uh, Spielberg had ever heard. And so he cast her and, and they swapped the agency. She did. She, her scream is pretty amazing. Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Hey, um, do you mind Do you mind if we sidestep a little bit? I just uh, Before we get, yeah. again, too far into why this book's awesome. So you've just released 
your latest novel, The Jane, Jane Doe and the Quill of All Tales, and it's part of your Jane Doe Chronicles, but it's firmly entrenched in sort of middle grade fiction. But I'm really curious about your link between your, is there a more certain link that you can really pull? Like I take these ideas from Michael Crichton and this is now part of my writing desire or the things that I really admire in writing. Like what's the link? Um, I guess, I mean, yeah. Is there anything that you draw from him that you hope will be replicated in your own work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my, I wouldn't say mine's firmly entrenched in middle grade. Mine's kind of middle grade YA. I mean, I wrote it for kids, teens and adults, and it, it does bridge that gap between middle grade and YA because quite often 13, 14-year-olds are kind of forgotten a lot uh, in, when it comes that. to writing kind of uh, festival, writers' festivals and everything. There's the middle grade, which is often geared towards younger fantasy stuff and the or, or real-world, you know, contemporary stuff, but more oh, innocent okay. and then the older and there's this middle ground where the, these younger teens are often kind of some of them can't handle the, the the hardcore stuff of YA, but they're a bit sick of the the cutesy middle grade kind of stuff. That's really sorry. Um, I actually sorry. This is my bad. I actually thought middle grade meant middle of like school life, like year six, year seven sort of style. But it's actually younger, is it? Middle grade. Well, middle, middle younger. So so the ages are often around, but the people would kind of say maybe like nine to twelve or something like that. Oh, okay. People seem to have, or even like eight, eight years old to thirteen. Like it, it's it's a it's a depending on who you talk to. Right. Um so yeah, but my my books, uh, I mean I, I wrote it for kids, teens and adults because I loved movies like like Jurassic Park and Star Wars and Indiana Jones and I love I've always loved the Chronicles of Narnia and all that. But those one of the things that annoys me about the the book world is particularly in children's writing that we try and segment it so much into oh this book is for this age group and and, and all that. Whereas 100%. with movies, they they release these big movies and it's for everyone. Like families will go and see it, everyone read it, and that's the vein I wrote my books in. And it's really that's really been... cool, man. I pay that. That's really good. So yeah, I I mean I enjoy watching Jurassic Park now as much as I did when it first came out. It yeah, does and different... it's really. Wonderful. I, I love hearing from uh, kids who've read it and adults who've read it. I love hearing from families who've been sitting in the car listening to the audiobook together. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So that's amazing. But back back to your question in terms of things that I've that I that I hope or you know that I draw from with Michael Crichton. One yeah. of the things that I think is phenomenal the way he plots is he doesn't show his cards too soon. Mm. He really does race the mystery, and there is a really clear narrative arc of. And this is where the beauty of the Jurassic Park novels come in, Jurassic Park and the Lost World. It's about the breakdown of complex systems and the approach towards the edge of chaos. And so as the the, the novels, can, you know, as you're working your way through the novel, all these, these elements start weaving together and things start breaking down and then shit hits the fan, chaos breaks loose, and it's all about just trying, trying to get out alive. Mm. Um, I love that he doesn't just immediately get to dinosaurs killing people on page 10 kind of thing i mean if you and, and i'd actually forgotten this but rereading it i was surprised the main instigating incident in terms of uh, when things break down which in the movie happens about halfway through which is when the t-rexes shove the, the the trailer off the off the cliff yeah remember that big, big sequence that actually takes place uh, a quarter way like three quarters of the way through the lost world it's yeah, really right. the last quarter of the book where things really uh ramp up um, and it's not like nothing's happening before then, but it's this really kind of, I don't know, interesting, mysterious build 
to, so, to well, that, I, to it's also you know they spend so long even just finding where Levine is it just takes a long time to figure it out and they have to go to his house and sort of break into his computer and things like that but it's always like yeah it's this page turner because you want to know you want to the mystery to be unveiled and, and I think that's really smart like he does he does he has a real knack for revealing things at a pace that's it's a slow it's a, I wouldn't call it slow but it's like a steady consistent build up where you're turning every page but at the same time he's not revealing things too early it's it's actually quite difficult <laughs> to nail that yeah, sort of time and, and I think I think what I mean what I try and do in mine is and I know I I had some criticism from my first one because it, it, the, the first part of the book before so for those who don't know the, the first book in my series Jane Doe and the Cradle of All Worlds it's about a girl who has to journey into this infinite labyrinth between worlds to rescue her dad who disappears inside and traditionally I feel like a lot like uh, a lot of kind of present day storytelling, you would want Jane to go into the manor, this dangerous labyrinth by chapter two, to, to really kick things off because you don't want to, you don't want kids to to put it down. I really don't like that way of storytelling because it immediately saps the manor, the crossing the first threshold, the end of the first act of all its power. Yeah. Uh, it just becomes okay, you're just you're just gonna go and have an adventure now. That's fine. So I chose to really kind of take my time but embrace the mystery of it, to really embrace and harp up the kind of the fear and the danger of stepping into this place. So that when Jane commits to that adventure and crosses that first threshold, it has like all the weight and all yeah. that. And so the leaders kind of on the edge of their seat before crossing that. So it takes a little bit to get there. But I mean, I, I and I try and pack it with all these interesting things, the same way that uh, Michael Crichton does with the Lost World. And a lot of it for me is, yeah, just embracing mystery in the unknown to propel the reader through. That's so smart, and it's sort of like it sounds like you know your book sort of teaches people how to read it as you're reading it. That's really interesting, and I guess it's the same with this. It's sort of the pace gets set at the start. So we're we're sort of globe hopping at the start, aren't we? We're sort of moving around a few different scenarios and a few things where there's some. There's a carcass washed up on the beach and Levine's there with it in a helicopter and things like that. Um, it's sort of a, like I say, yeah, yeah, the steady build sort of thing. Um, let's, do you mind if we turn, I've got a new section here that uh, a new segment of my show, of my podcast here. Um, I haven't done this with a lot of authors yet, but what this is called, it's called Bad Reads. So with Bad Reads, I go on to Goodreads and I find one star reviews of your favorite book. And then I'm going to read you quotes from these reviews for your response. <laughs> Love it. That's a brilliant idea. I thought you were going to say onto my book. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh-uh. See, that's, that's off. We don't do that. But I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to speak back to um, some negative reviews. And, you know, everyone's got their thing. So um, I've got one here. So this is number one. What I learned from the Lost World, the only people worthy of surviving in Crichton's world are geniuses. Everyone else is destined to be fodder or feed for terrorizing thunder lizards. Do you think that's a fair criticism? The only people I mean, who survive I mean, are the smart ones. I, well, I feel like that's pretty legit and true to life because the smart people would be the ones to survive right if, if you're not that smart you're not going to survive on an island full of that's funny yeah i mean i pay it yep maybe it's yeah, not a criticism gotta, yeah you've got to have your unique uh skills to get through and and you you love to see these the the awful characters on there because the, the bad guys in the lost world are really uh again people who haven't read the book there's only really three 
bad guys that go to the island. It's not this whole big crew to get yeah, the it's island. Not it's a and all that, quieter, yeah. Yeah, quieter kind of kind of. Um, and they're actually given of, characters to the three guys, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, but I, I, it's a weird thing to make. Like, do you want to? See, do you not want to see smart people? Smart, I mean, it, it, Eddie dies eddie was a character i, I was gonna I hoping hoping would survive eddie carr is the kind of assistant um engineer guy on the on the island he got he got eaten by velociraptors um mm. but you also you want you, you need some good carnage He's some deaths uh, yeah you do otherwise it's not yeah. scary all right um number two jurassic park was pretty good but this book was rather poor it reads like a bad movie and here's actually something that we've both mentioned. The author is so intent upon pushing chaos theory on the reader that he often forces the characters to behave way, way, way out of their habits in order to force things to go wrong. People suddenly do really stupid things. People forget that they have weapons. All attempts to prepare for a situation automatically fail. Um, I don't know whether I agree with this one either, but what's your thought on that? Uh, no, I, like, I, I don't. There are some elements that I, I, I agree with. Like uh, Levine has been uh, so intent on not having, not not putting his uh, imprint and his footprint on the on the island and not leaving anything there to, to enjoy. And then at one point he just tosses a candy wrapper off the thing to see which way the wind is going. Yeah. Um, and that then is the candy wrapper that ends up drawing the, the velociraptor. There's a lot of candy bars throughout it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So th those little things, but also, I mean, it's it's a little bit true to life that people make mistakes and everything like that. For sure, um, for sure. You, well, while you're being chased around the, it's all good. It's all well and good for us to be sitting on our couch thinking, oh, these people running for their lives on an island uh, made some silly mistakes. Like I'm pretty sure if we were all there, we would make some silly mistakes. Uh, I think I well. would die almost immediately if I'm being real. You know, you'd I, like I think to think you're fun. the smart one on the island, but. Mm. I'd like to think I'd survive just because I'm a big dinosaur nerd, but also I'd probably get a leech and freak out. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, the, the thing I do agree with that is that there, there, are, there are some forced elements with the with going, like delving into the chaos theory, like with uh, getting Ian Malcolm to have the same injury, the same kind of morphine mm -hmm. haze happening. Uh, it would have been cool to see him step up more into kind of a heroic role, role alongside. Or just any Martin. other role, right? Yeah, yeah, any other role. And to not have the kids do the exact same kind of stuff as, yeah, as yeah. well. Um, yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Um, and then the last one I have for you. Um, first first of all, the characters are all sociopaths. Not a single character show any emotion over the death of any other character. Some of them have been working with Eddie for years, and yet when he falls is immediately killed by raptors, they just move on. What are your Look, thoughts? I actually, I actually agree with that. There's one line about oh, what uh, what happened to Eddie, and Levine just says it was quick, and not a single other character mentions this. He's not mentioned again in in the novel. Uh, there's no oh my gosh, I wish Eddie was here, uh, and he was he was looking after the kids pretty well up until that point. Yeah. So look, there are there are some character beats. I, I think there if. It would have been nice to expand on some of those those moments between the characters uh, throughout. It, it's almost like he just didn't. He wanted to, like I said, it's really stripped back the last quarter of of the 
book, even the action seasons themselves. I, in my mind, you know, you read something as a kid, and in my mind, those action sequences go on forever, brilliantly, mm-hmm. like in the best possible way. But then you read them, and it's kind of like one or two pages for for those for those little bits. Um, I mean, some of the iconic ones, which are just great. There's the the trailers getting pushed over the edge. Uh, the, the high hide sequence where the, the velociraptors are jumping up to attack the kids and the, and, and Eddie and, and Levine. Uh, the, the motorcycle chase where Kelly Love and it. Harding, the, the one of the so Arby falls off the high hide and crawls into a cage quickly below, uh, and one of the raptors accidentally gets its its the key snapped like around its snapped around its lower jaw and runs off. Meanwhile, the raptors take the cage off in another direction. So Kelly and Harding have to jump on a motorcycle and with the rifle and go chase the the velociraptor across this plane. The apotosaurs are swiping their tails. It's such an incredible sequence. And it's written so tightly. It's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I I still remember that sequence. Um, yeah, I, I, he has. It's a criticism of his, though, isn't it? That he he is ha- a bit emotionless with his writing. I think a few people have said that about him. He's much more technical and more focused mm. on moving forward. And I think with an action, um, an adventure book too, maybe a few more lines here and there. But you wouldn't want to dwell too long on the death of characters and have everyone sort of get morose about it although maybe you do i don't know i don't know just just a just a line or something yeah because particularly from doc thorne who was working very uh yes very Eddie for, for quite some time yeah. um yeah but it's it's like we say he, he doesn't go into trauma emotions i mean like i said ian malcolm has been through this before but we really we really ian malcolm is really kept it at, at an arm's length even though mm-hmm. he's kind of the main character, at least the main, he for the first half, he's the main character. There's no fear from him that we see. He 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 goes along with this plan yeah. to discover this lost world. It's that's the thing that really struck me reading it this second time recently. Uh, he goes along with it without questioning, without actually saying, "Hang on, no, I know what's happening here. Stop! Don't look at this. It's not a lost world. It is a constructed kind of thing." Yes. But he's, he's going at it from a point of view of. Yes, these things were created, but it's an opportunity to discover and research uh, extinction and and why why mm. the dinosaurs went extinct uh, to begin with. So I, I I agree with I can see why people uh, would find it frustrating uh, and see it as a weakness of the book, and maybe maybe it is, and with his writing in general, but also the payoff for that, I guess, is that you do get this rollicking read where you don't yeah. have to get bogged down in silly emotions. Hundred <laughs> <So. laughs> percent. All right, I'd like to quickly talk to you about um, Michael Crichton himself and his craft because I love to talk about and look at look at authors describing their own craft. Um, it's sort of catnip for authors, isn't it? Just other authors talking about what they do. Um, but here's one of I just wanted to hear your responses and whether or not you think this applies to how you think about writing as well. So he says this. Michael Crichton says, "I don't try to write a bestseller." I don't think anybody can do that. If you try, you will make a lousy book and it will also fail. But I don't especially enjoy writing. I mean, I like it, but it is hard work. So it's a bit like running marathons. Runners like it, but they're ambivalent about it too. So I write because in some way I'm compelled to do it. Often I just feel grabbed by a story and yanked into the office to start writing. Do do you enjoy writing? How do you feel about what he's just said? 
I, I love that you're asking this because it's actually one of my favourite questions to ask authors. I've, I've done a bit of interviewing, like emceeing at a festival and stuff myself. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating question because I feel like a lot of people expect authors to say, of course, I, 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 I. see, I, I look at it as there's a difference between loving something and enjoying something. Like mm. I, I, I love writing. I, I do agree, like it, it is a compulsion. To me, it's like this... A, I'm not very good at other things. I don't know what else I'd do if I wasn't an author and or you know wasn't focused on stories for my life. But uh, yeah, it's it is difficult, and I, I I love it. I can't imagine doing anything else. But there are some days, and to be honest, most days where it is a real struggle, and mm. uh, I, I, I doubt myself constantly. There's the there's the fear, there's the anxiety, uh, those voices. T- telling you i mean i it, it's not i i believe in my characters and my world so much it's just about whether i can do it justice because i can see it all so mm. clearly can i put that onto the page and, and 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 do it justice those are the kinds of the fears that drive you and i've been thinking a lot about the fact that um i mean it kind of sucks but i feel like that will always be part of the process and it's necessary because it mm. does force you to do better work i think the day with that, that i sit down and all the words come too easily and it just the the story is just done like that yeah i, I think i'm not pushing myself as much as an author as but i as as concerned I with getting it right sort of thing yeah so i i really love that 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 quote and the, the first bit um talking about not being able to write uh, trying to write a bestseller, I think basically the core of what he's saying is you have to write a story that you want to tell. Yeah, like we yeah. have a hundred people that can tell our stories. Um, so yeah, that's you. You can't write to. I mean, I know there are some people who write with a market in mind, um, and I think it's different between writing for an audience. Like I, I, I know the the kids that are going to love my 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 book, and I'm writing for them, but I'm really also writing for me. I'm not writing yeah. uh, tick boxes in terms of what's going to ensure a bestseller. And I know people do it. Particularly, I mean, romance is such a huge thing at the moment. And I know there are agents saying to their authors, write, write this kind of kind of romance kind of, kind of thing. And people are doing it because some people, they, they need to pay the bills and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. Yeah, but- it's interesting too, because it it's a lot about unpacking your... It's, it's, and I find it very difficult because sometimes I'll write something and I'll look back at it and I, I sort of go, oh, I think I was just trying to please people with that and it's it's a little different from when my motivation is it's strange isn't it because at the same time there are people who are just they love romance or they love adventure stories or they love writing a crime thriller and they'll be naturally inclined to tell stories with those conventions and in that vein i guess i mean it's sort of just about not not writing and like, I'm going to sell a million copies because I put this, 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 and this in it. It's more, I'm going to tell a really gripping story the best way I can. And then hopefully those other things are in there, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to, 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 there's a difference between writing for a genre and putting those elements in there and writing a bestseller. I mean, you can, I mean, mine, mine are very spec fiction, genre, genre fiction books. You, you've got to hit those beats in order to satisfy the kind of reader that, that, is, is going to pick them up, but you can have all the ingredients in a book for a bestseller and it won't become a bestseller because there's so, so much is out of our control. It's about timing. It's about the audience. Uh, world events can shape what people gravitate towards and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's that people who deliberately try and capture that lightning in a bottle, I feel like it's a quick path to heartbreak. 
Um, yeah, to pay that. Yeah, why are you actually doing this? What mm-hmm. What is your measure of success? And try not to make that dependent on these things that are really difficult to reach. I um, I, I often, in going to that second part of that quote that you talked about a bit earlier too, about um, whether you enjoy it, I, I always think about it like I don't enjoy writing, but I enjoy having written. Yeah, absolutely. So when <laughs> it's... <laughs> I think about exercise the same way. It's like when I'm getting to the gym or when I'm putting on my clothes, I'm like, oh, I just, I don't want to. But once I've done it, I feel really good about myself. And it's the same with writing. Like once I've done the work and you look at it and you're like, oh, it's a set, it's a, it's a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. I don't think I get from anywhere else. So yeah, but it's the during, it can be quite, it's, it's the motivation to do it when you could be, watching uh, tv or something you know what i mean like it's 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 more oh, active absolutely yeah but i mean look there, there are times for me when it, i don't i don't want it to make it sound like we're, we're just these gluttons for punishment hating what we do there are times when <laughs> it feels like the the, the the clouds open up and light shines down and, yeah. and it did though you have those moments in a in a chapter a, a, a paragraph a sentence where it just feels you have that voice saying, no, you can do this. Like you were actually mm-hmm. born to do this. And this story is great. These characters are great. And people are going to love this. You're loving it. And, and it feels wonderful. But then you can wake up the next morning and think, okay, I'm going to, the same thing's going to happen again. And you sit down and there's just nothing. Yeah. And it's, I don't, I don't and again, that's just always going to be part of it. I'll always reel from that and, and fight against it. But I think it is just, I need to accept, we, we need to accept that's, yeah and do you ever find um, like you have those days when you are on fire and like you say the heavens part and everything's glowing and everything's magic and you're really just in the flow and then you read back that writing next to writing where you just had to force it and you're like i can't tell the difference (laughs) exactly the same like (laughs) yeah it's it's a real it's a real kind of cauldron of of all of these things but i mean we're we're human beings writing human stories uh, even if they're set in different worlds and dealing with different creatures and everything like that so of yeah. course they're gonna the production and creation is gonna be a bit messy mm. uh, and that's i think the real beauty of it as well um thank you for that oh, that was a good response um and then i've got one more quote from him here which says this um so he's talking about how long it actually takes him to write his books and i thought this was fairly interesting because i'd always oh. pictured him as like a, a churn amount kind of guy Um, But he said here, the great train robbery took three years. Sphere took 20 years. And the the original Jurassic Park took eight years. I find that incredible. Like I just, there's there's so much in there. Like I can get it. Why? But I'd always just Mm. assumed he'd pumped them out. But apparently he just thinks about them for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me particularly with Jurassic Park because, and, and again, the difference between Jurassic Park and the Lost World, the book structurally they're very different, and they're, they're almost the writing style. I feel like is quite different as well. Mm. Jurassic Park covers a much uh, like a, a longer, I think, a longer period of time, much broader scope. This the Lost World basically takes place over two or three days, and and that's it. Um, but I mean, it doesn't surprise me with eight, eight years. I mean, it took me for Cradle, my first book. It took me. 11 years from when I came up with the idea to when I got it published and about six, seven of that was actually writing the actual book. That's amazing. Editing it and getting it to the right person. Wow. Um, and how, and, like in that process, like how much of that is 
how much of that is going over similar scenes or scrapping scenes and ideas, or is it just laboriously going over words? Like, I'm wondering, do you write a whole thing and look at it and go, ah, it's not quite right, chuck that bit and that sort of thing? Or is it slow and steady, just, I don't know, I'm just interested. Yeah, it was, it was, so are you quite a quick writer? I write very quickly, yeah, but I take a long time editing. I take a very long time going over it and over it and over it and over it. So that's that's yeah, sort of my meat potatoes. I'm, I'm kind of the, the polar opposite. I, for whatever reason, my, my brain can kind of keep an entire story and and like structure and plot is my my jam. And I can I just do it all in my head. It's like a set of dominoes being set up. And if I'm if I'm writing it, I make a change. The dominoes kind of trip and then get reset and everything. Mm. But it's it is more what you described that that slow plotting because I can see it all so clearly in my in my head. I just and I thought when I started, I remember saying to my mom at one point soon after I came up with the idea, like, oh, if I if I write a, a chapter a week, I'll be done by November, kind of kind of thing. Uh, you know, a few few months from now. And I because I, I'd never written a book before. This was my my first attempt, and I was so green and had no idea what I was talking about because I'm not <laughs> a fast writer. Like uh, there were some chapter. There's one chapter in book one. Uh, in the first act where Jane is with Winifred Robin down in this library and and I was I was trapped there for about three months just trying to figure out how to tell this story because it's it's quite a complex all three of them are quite complex but the beauty or the or the trick for a, a writer like myself is to make it read easily and not not feel complex but to have that depth uh, and complexity there yeah, and wow. sort of, but you sort of you get get it right as you go that's really interesting yeah, and I do I do compulsively edit as I go on. I'm trying to break free of that, but also trying to <laughs> maybe that's just the way that I work. Yeah, because then, then I didn't have, I didn't have the luxury of that. Um, you know, my first book came out and did, did well, and I had it, so I had expectation and proper deadlines for the first time in my life. And that was terrifying. So I only really had like a year and a half, two years to write book two, and that forced me to write in a completely different way. Book three was supposed to be the easy one, and then the pandemic started just as I sat down to write it, so I had nothing within me. Yeah. Uh, to loop it back to the lost world, there is a dinosaur in my third one, so that was a fun thing to, to kind of enjoy. <laughs> That's awesome. Like I, I could really just live my Jurassic Park fantasy on, on, you know, put it onto the page in my own, create my own kind of dinosaur sequence, which was a lot of fun, and I... I just would stare at the, my my copy of the Lost World every now and again, just feel that thrill to be like, all right, <laughs> just I'm, to I'm be vibing you, Mike. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's one more thing I want to talk about before we wrap up. Um, I don't know how much of this I actually want to read. So there's a lot of almost philosophy that comes out of Malcolm that I find really interesting, and a lot of the time, like we were talking about, it's sort of just Michael Crichton, the author, sort of talking about stuff he finds interesting, which would be natural for Malcolm to find interesting too. But I, I love this quote, and I, I just wanted to hear your opinion on this, because um, he's talking about the internet, like the early stages of the internet. And he says, this idea that the whole world is wired together is mass death. Every biologist knows that small groups in isolation evolve fastest. You put a thousand birds on an ocean island, they evolve very fast. He put 10,000 on a big continent and their evolution slows down. Now, for our own species, evolution occurs mostly through our behavior. We innovate new behavior to adapt. And everybody on Earth knows that innovation only occurs in small groups. Put three people on a committee and they may get something done. 10 people gets harder. 30 people, nothing happens. 30 million? <laughs> it becomes impossible. And I was like, 
the foresight to talk about this. Do you know what it is? I'm so glad you mentioned that. I actually read that page today yeah, and yeah. thought I made a note to mention that. And I was thinking, should I read that out? Because it's phenomenal. I'm so glad you, you read that out. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's I, well, it struck me too. I just, it's just amazing. And it's, it, it does really like, it. you know, this came out in, like you said, 95, right? Like it's nearly 30 years past the point where this book came out. And yet here he is predicting this kind of, um mass i guess slowing down i guess of i don't know whether you agree with it necessarily but i think it's hard to I sort think, of yeah i think there were some bits of it that i really did agree with but because yeah. you didn't know, social media wasn't a thing i mean the internet existed but social media certainly didn't back then and and i do see what what he's saying uh in that and it really did strike me as, as kind of incredible but this is the beauty of science fiction right and this is yes. it annoys when when people uh, we'll look down upon spec fiction or genre fiction, spec is in speculative fiction, yeah. uh, as, as less than literary fiction because science fiction has always been kind of at the forefront of, of kind of predicting and sometimes very correctly predicting, accurately predicting what's what's going to happen in, in the future. It's just crazy. It's, it's yeah, you wonder who he was talking to and where his mind was and who, you know, he must be doing so much research and thinking about these deep topics. It's no wonder he puts them into his books, you know, because it's really interesting. And now, you know, 30 years in the future. Oh, you know, what, what's hang on. What does it say here? It'll free. Yeah, we haven't figured out. What about intellectual diversity, our most necessary resource? That's disappearing faster than trees. But we haven't figured that out. So now we're planning to put five billion people together in cyberspace and it'll freeze the entire species. Everyone will think the same thing at the same time. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah, that, but I, I guess what we've got now is it, we, uh, we've got the, the divide happening so much, which is that people stirring yeah. the culture and everything. So it's almost like not everybody thinking the same. We're getting uh, further and further into two distinct camps. That Isn't that interesting? Yeah, 100%. Running. That's really interesting. Like we're getting, yeah, it's almost like you, you, you have... You, you sort of are forced to think one way about every single thing sort of yeah um or you then you get counter to every single thing and then you get to be in the group of the counter people you know and it's anyway um i thought it was really interesting and like you said science fiction yeah i don't know it's it's like he must be talking to some very um smart people um was there anything else you wanted to talk about man like i'm i just i love this book and i'm so glad you chose it it's one of my childhood favorites is there anything else you wanted to mention that you had that you wanted to talk about i think i think i think that's it thank you for the opportunity to just geek out about this i know that there's when i've I've told a bunch of mates and just some people on, on instagram that i was doing this and they are there is so much love for this book i feel like there is a generation of people who uh like myself and like yourself maybe didn't wasn't able to read the first Jurassic Park when when it first came out because our minds weren't quite at that level. Like I remember my brother bought me the Jurassic Park uh, movie novelization. Uh, like a you know, yeah, much, much I remember. Yeah, I remember him saying to me, "I don't, I don't think you'd be able to handle the the adult one," and I wouldn't have been able to. It's it's no. too big and scientific and, and it's actually quite of, violent yeah. in spots as well you know yeah i mean that i would have been fine with i was obsessed with <laughs> oh dude i remember reading where dennis nedry had his guts clawed out i remember when i was a kid reading that yeah. i was like what like it blew it's, my mind it's, 
it, it's wild. But then, then this book, the, the movie came out, we're obsessed with that. And a few years later, I feel like there's a whole generation of readers where this was the, the kind of, I'm sure there's a lot of people like me where this was the gateway into kind of the more adult uh, fiction. And I, yeah, I, I just that. I, I, as much as I was, uh, I do have little question marks about the book and about the motivation and some of the characters and, and everything. It is one of my most beloved books mm. and, and experiences, as I said. There, there are so many amazing sequences in this that you get to and it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. And you've seen some of them be kind of echoed throughout the later movies uh, and in going to the Jurassic World kind of, kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, it's, it is a really great read. So anyone listening, if they haven't actually read Jurassic Park and Lost World, they've only seen the movies, I really encourage you to get out there and pick it up and, and have fun. Yeah, absolutely. And even just in, you know, if you're a writer, just a lesson in set piece and action writing, I think like if any, it does a lot of awesome things, but especially those things, he just, it's, it's, it's an absolute clinic in how to do it well it really isn't because I, I remember like with some of my early action sequences in cradle of all worlds there's this big sequence on a runaway train and i remember really getting into it and just having fun but it was too exhausting i mean people read those early drafts and it went for about 20 30 pages <laughs> uh, and it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing i was saying to a, a, an author re another author recently who wanted to get into more action sequences um there, there is an art to it and it's uh, it's a very fine line between uh, kind of giving the reader a, a, a wild ride, but ending it just at the right moment so it doesn't become exhausting. And when their eyes start glazing over the page, because it also, if you throw too many things at a reader, the the really important things won't land. So mm. it's really negotiation you have to you have to. And a lot of that's just practice and and editing and everything. But always kind of leave your reader wanting a bit more from an action sequence or make, make them feel like they've got everything they want out of it, but they have to be wanting more for the next, for the next action sequence to come. Yeah. And that's, uh, and you know, another good way to learn how to do that well is by reading people who do it well. Um, Absolutely. yeah. So, uh, thank you for choosing this book. It's been awesome to chat about it. And, um, yeah, you can pick up your Jane Doe Chronicles, um, in, you know, all different bookstores across Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 out there now. It's uh, yeah, the response to Quill of All Tales so far has been really, really wonderful. It's it's really heartwarming to just see it out there, and you know, booksellers have been amazing, readers have been amazing. So yeah, we're pretty lucky to do what we do, aren't we? A hundred percent. It's a it's an honour. Um, never, yeah, and sometimes it's hard to remember what it was like before you were published. But it's, you know, every time I think back to that young, hungry young man i guess it's always very grateful to be in the position i'm in and grateful to have good conversations with people like yourself absolutely man thank you so much it's been i honestly I, i've loved this so much and <laughs> apologies i was rambling and everything I, i've been geeking out and it's, it's been so cool so thank you so much that's awesome man all right thank you